please join me in warmly welcoming back to UCLA, Professor Jane Lewis. Thank you so much. <laughs> but uh, I'm still stuck back at intellectual work. I hope this counts. <laughs> but anyway, I wanted to thank Rob and, and Claire and Liz for asking me to come in today to offer my own uh, prehistory of the environment in the form of a discussion on um, atmosphere. And it is really nice to be back here. I have been away for a while, but I do still walk with growing pride. <laughs> so that's important to establish. And this is a little bit long as a talk, and I apologize for that, but I have some pictures to break up the monotony. That's primarily their purpose. I think this is going on. <laughs> my little boy helped design the PowerPoint, so if it gets a little flashy, that's not my doing. <laughs> but anyway, I'll try to deal with this as best I can, and it will be a little bit of a distraction. Um, just before I start to say, um, as, as Rob said, this is part of a, um, a larger project, uh, which looks at, uh, actually pairs several different makers of British fiction. Uh, among whom I count Pope and Milton, as well as Defoe, Fielding, Lennox, and, and Radcliffe, uh, with several uh, natural philosophers, physicians, and meteorologists, avant la lettre, um, in order to show how intimately the air that appears in British fiction was involved with writing about the uniquely shapely and vaporous and changeable novel um, air of the British Isles. And I'm trying to kind of give a genealogy that relationship. Uh, and this is really um, the last sort of chapter in that genealogy. Um, and it considers the relationship between the Gothic novelist um, and Radcliffe. That's what I mean about the flashy graphics. <laughs> the Gothic novelist um, Anne Radcliffe and the pneumatic chemist um, Joseph Priestley. So these are the two persons of interest in my talk today. Um, both of them are figures who are known to you at least by reputation. I'm sure uh, Radcliffe, of course, the most popular, uh, prolific, and influential Gothic novelist of the 1790s, who forged uh, several enduring Gothic conventions, including one that leaked into other novelistic subgenres, which has to do with depictions of the air. Um, and uh, air is, in fact, one of the most common words in all of her novels, but it's most common in her longest novel, The Mysteries of Udolpho, uh, 1794, which is the novel that I'll be focusing on today really in the first part of the talk. So the first part of the talk is going to be very much about her and, and that novel. And then the other figure is Joseph Priestley, who was the leading pneumatic chemist of the later 18th century, um, and someone who was very much at the forefront of the so-called chemical revolution, which began in the middle of the 18th century to analyze um, all the entire natural world into gases. Everything could be composed into what Priestley called factitious airs, carbon dioxide, oxygen, carbon monoxide, uh, Priestley's the one who really sort of set up that, um, that kind of approach to the natural world. Uh, and this contribution um, of his is um, embodied in his 1774 book, Experiments and Observations on Different Kinds of Air, which I put beside the mysteries of Udolpho to give you a sense of the, 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 the pairing here. Um, and it's about the same length as mysteries of Udolpho, um, same number of volumes. Um, copious, um, intensely uh, literary in its perceptions in lots of ways. I mean, that's something I'm obviously very, very interested in. So I want to try to put these books um, really side by side and talk about their um, relationship to each other, and particularly thinking about them in terms of their common form, uh, the, the media form in which they appear, which is, um, which is uh, writing, which I understand to be a kind of technology for, for uh, 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 engaging atmosphere in, in the period. 
so uh, I think about the similarity, as I say, between these, these two books. Um, if you know anything about Radcliffe or Priestley, um, as I'm assuming a lot of you uh, do, uh, you're probably more aware of their differences than, than their similarities. Um, and just to give you an idea of how different they really are, Radcliffe was um, a uh, recluse who left England um, in her life only once for Holland and the western frontiers of Germany. That despite the fact that she set all of her Gothic novels in remote locations like um, Italy and France. Um, she uh, wrote uh, fiction, poetry, and one very brief theoretical essay on the supernatural in poetry, um, but by and large it's a writer of imaginative literature. Uh, and someone who was very, in some ways, quite obscure, despite the incredible popularity of her work. Um, people, uh, if they knew anything about her in her lifetime, uh, well, knew very little about her in her lifetime. Uh, and after her death, wild rumors floated that she'd been driven mad by her own writing. People confused <laughs> her with the uh, novelist Marianne Radcliffe. Um, and she sort of dissolved, actually, into sort of false attribution uh, thereafter. And she's still somewhat, uh, somewhat shadowy uh, kind of figure, and that's always appropriate for a Gothic novelist. Priestley, uh, relentlessly sociable, um, and a friend of many major uh, figures um, of the uh, later part of the Enlightenment, Benjamin Franklin, um, Josiah Wedgwood, Erasmus Darwin, um, <laughs> and so on. Uh, and someone who, uh, moreover, as opposed to Radcliffe, who had a very highly mediated relationship to what she was writing about, um, considering she was writing about Italy and France and never venturing out of England, uh, Priestley based experiments and observations very much on that observations, uh, and did it more or less in his spare time, as opposed to uh, Radcliffe being very devoted to a particular kind of imaginative literature. Priestley um, was, among other things, a Unitarian minister, um, and also an English professor, um, <laughs> who, uh, in the decade leading up to experiments and observations, uh, published numerous works on, on rhetoric, on grammar, um, perspective drawing, on history, and he moved on to the, the Christian uh, Gospels. Uh, the other thing is Radcliffe's political reputation is something of a, of a conservative. Um, Priestley um, was uh, a friend to the French and American revolutions. His laboratory and his, la um, his library went up in flames at the Birmingham riots in the 1790s because of his support for the, um, those democratic movements. Um, and he eventually, in fact, as opposed to Radcliffe, where he'd written down, um, immigrated to western Pennsylvania, which is where he, and this is a direct quote from Priestley, Cease to breathe when I've just begun to know what it is I breathe. <laughs> so, but he did continue with his pneumatic researches with American air for whatever it's worth. So, um, so two very different figures, but um, in putting their work side by side and thinking about them together, um, I hope to turn our attention really to what they have in common, which is a language of the air and implicitly, therefore, a language about the environment of the world around us, the physical um, uh, world around us. And given that they do have this commonality, one of the questions we have to ask is why their respective idioms within that common language have come to be valued um, so differently and to circulate in such different worlds. So that's the kind of question that I'm moving uh, toward. Um, and in moving toward that question or mystery, um, I will start with a quote from Experiments and Observations. I had it on the screen originally. I'm not going to go back, so then I can thread my way along through that, through these together, so this picture. Uh, but the, the, um, the citation. I read it, I'll just start reading the talk. Um, the circumstances, this is Priestley and experiments and observations, the circumstances in which any kind of air is decomposed tend to discover its composition. So I want to start with a grammar point. Just what is it we mean when we say that a literary work, but most especially a work of fiction, has an atmosphere? 
What might this term and the presumably common experience that it conjures have to do with the atmosphere? Such questions are, so to speak, in the air right now, not least because we're kind of worried about how long either literary fiction or the air about us might last in its present form, about the nature, degree, and significance of our contribution to the shelters that both provide. It doesn't help that it's so hard to say exactly what either a literary atmosphere or the atmosphere about us actually is. With respect to books, we can matter all we want about mood and voice, the German Schumann, or we can parse novelistic weather reports, fog everywhere, it was a dark and stormy night, to our heart's ever elusive content. Speaking of elusive, who was it? William Empson. William Empson tried to decide what literary atmosphere might be. Here it is, an undifferentiated mode of being that is conveyed to some un in some unknown and fundamental way as a byproduct of meaning. In the end, Empson threw up his hands. What was atmosphere? I quote, analysis cannot hope to do anything but ignore it, he concluded. <laughs> <laughs> and criticism can only state that it is there. <laughs> as for this so-called sphere of vapors that literally surrounds us and upon which we so manifestly and entirely and Karl Marx was surely equally right to find, from capital I quote, that after the discovery of the compound gases of the air, the atmosphere remained unaltered. We are, in other words, every bit as confused as we were, we were before we knew a thing about the air. Fog everywhere, indeed. Now, it's certainly possible that such mystification is actually one guise that enlightenment assumes. I think it is. But I want to float a far more modest proposal that while the idea and experience of a literary atmosphere seems to be a metaphorical extension of the physical atmosphere, as known to and by modern science, these two kinds of air actually developed interdependently. They did that, I'm going to say, over the course of what we rapaciously, I admit, call the long 18th century. In English print, the word atmosphere first appears in 1636, when the polymath John Wilkins's discovery of a new world in the moon less defines atmosphere than, obviously, projects it as an orb of gross, vaporous air immediately encompassing the moon. A few years later, Wilkins's fascinating treatise on cryptography, Mercury, or the Secret and Swift Messenger, spent pages picturing such immediately encompassing orbs as they might be mediated through the manifestly terrestrial body of letters. So Wilkins told his readers how to write by the sunbeams upon a wall in front of a home, and how to scribble on a glass, and then oppose the glass against the full moon so that letters would appear through it. It would be hard to find a more literal instance <coughs> of literary atmosphere, or at least of the evocative spaces between lexical lines. But Fumifugium, John Evelyn's 1661 treatise, on the epidemical evil of coal-based air pollution in Restoration London, compounds analysis of the air's infinite mutations with the accidental effects of Evelyn's own well-wrought quasi-pastoral sentences upon a royal reader ostentatiously praised as the very breath in our nostrils. Most to the point, no doubt, the English pneumatic chemists themselves, from Robert Boyle, Edmund Bohun, and Stephen Hales, right up to Priestley, were all compulsive writers and self-conscious literary stylists. And they had to grapple with their subject, airs, invisibility, its ubiquity, 
and the pressure exerted by its persistent, strong connotations within folkloric and faith traditions. These properties of the air give figurative language in general, but explicitly literary language in particular, an active and dynamic role in its conceptualization and investigation. Working within, and thereby shaping what we would call a venue media environment composed of typographical elements, Britain's first aerial philosophers built into the print medium a unique reflexivity, a propensity to give rise, if only apparently, to its own effectual surroundings. This propensity was dramatized whenever it came to citing either the elements that compose what we call the air, or air's complication into what we call the atmosphere. Atmosphere presumably happening, that is, when air absorbs, and in absorbing makes apparent, the steams, effluvia, and all the abrasions of bodies on the surface of the earth. That last phrase came courtesy of John Arbuthnot, a guest in physician, satirist, and chronicler of the effects of air on human bodies in 1733. So we have air's elusiveness and its natural affinity with reflexive compositional forms, namely print, that were, after all, built to make intangibles apparent and effectual. Over the course of the 18th century, these properties potentially licensed many different kinds of writing as principal investigators of the air. Indeed, the more widely diffused, the more superficial, and the more practiced in the mechanics of producing effects without supplying any immediate cause, the better. So it's just possible to imagine that popular fiction might even have an edge here. Where might we look for the first evidence of literary fiction's atmospheric dimension, whatever that byproduct of belles lettres is that makes us feel as if we are in a superficial world that we know not to be real? You see, I have a definition of sorts. For evidence of the first literary atmosphere, many of us would hold up one or any of the popular Gothic novels of the 1790s. Admittedly, this would be to overlook such effects of earlier English fiction as the, quote, cheerful, sunshiny, breezy spirit that, according to Coleridge, prevails everywhere in Fielding's Tom Jones, in which the romantic poet closely contrasted with the close, hot, daydreamy continuity of Richardson's Clarissa. Coleridge is known to have tested these novelistic winds, or lack thereof, in 1813, some years after British atmospheric science had settled into such apparently stable forms as Luke Howard's 1803 modifications of the clouds, cirrus, cumulus, stratus, or Priestley's revolutionary isolation of 14 different kinds of pneumatic gases from the carbons, monoxide, and dioxide to nitrogen, and to some extent oxygen, more on that later. Even without cutting-edge natural philosophy to make air apparent, Coleridge may well have learned from the likes of Monk Lewis and Mother Radcliffe how to experience even the most Lockean fictions of the High Enlightenment as if they had a climate. At the very least, the Gothic novels of the 1790s definitely feel like the first in English to have been preoccupied with gross, vaporous air. These same novels, of course, visibly manufactured the impression of that air through the creakiest of devices, the squealing hinge, the moaning wind, the sputtering flame, you know, the technology as well as I do. The very same technology turns up all the time in scientific studies of the air from boil forward. We can glimpse their Congress in this image, Joseph Wright of Darby's, still ubiquitous, it's on the Norton Anthology, uh, 1764 image of an air pump experiment, where shadows encroach and faces convulse in horror, even as air's true nature is presumably made apparent through the most artificial devices. 
But by the last decades of the 18th century, studies that took the air as an object of knowledge available only through artful instruments that had given, had given rise to a popular obsession with the possibility of knowing the atmosphere by immersing oneself, albeit still artificially, in it. Symptoms of this new preoccupation included the balloonomania of the 1780s, and also much of that resulting from the um, isolation of helium, hot air, and the founding of the English Pneumatic Medical Institute in 1792. So every Englishman had a place where he could safely go to inhale nitrous oxide, which is what Coleridge, among others, did there. Here, too, we have Benjamin Franklin's endlessly copied kite and key experiments, demonstrating that electricity is ambient and Elliot's electric, which is one of the many contemporary images. This is of Franklin out there in the atmosphere. Uh, Franklin, by the way, also experimented with guilt-bound books as conductors of electricity, which thereby revealed the charged and inherently communicative nature of the air about them, and thus. Gothic fiction sprang up everywhere in this newly charged atmosphere. And so it is not so surprising that they should be the first in English to which we easily apply the language of ambiance. So we still say, entirely without thinking, that Gothic writing gives us the chills and, make our, and makes our hair stand on end the whole time. The electrical effect, you'll remember, that Radcliffe's Mysteries of Udolpho had on Jane Austen's susceptible Catherine Morland. In tingling the spine, chilling the blood, and raising the hair, Gothic literary atmosphere depends on the elastic and notably hackneyed spring of the literal into the figural, of the material into the immaterial, even of a way of bodily experiencing something into a conventional way of talking about it. So does a Gothic literary atmosphere share with our unstable ideas of the atmosphere a bothersome and yet communally binding ambiguity with respect to what is really and naturally there around us and what is not. The Gothic fictions of the later 18th century merit an even closer look because so many of them, from Matthew Lewis's The Monk to Charlotte Smith's The Orphan of the Castle, so reliably offer up two things. One is physical worlds, visibly structured in and through writing, lost manuscripts, contracts, and court records that frame a given fiction from the start or seal it off in the end. Meanwhile, inside that fiction, we have graffiti wainscots and windows and walls, Characters the reader naturally equipped with pen and paper who virtually inhale and exhale the written word. Books, like one in the Mysteries of Udolpho, that fall into, quote, damp corners that cause the covers to be disfigured and moldy, and that are in turn absorbed by readers in dank and drafty rooms whose chemical composition is indistinguishable from that of the books that they contain, or that, were those aware, contain them. Thin letters are surrounding, this is my point, in the hypergraphic Gothic romance of the later 18th century. Just so, the other thing that such romances seem to supply is air itself, which is to say that in them, the air is always in our face. It presses itself upon us as a thing described, so we know it to be chilly, damp, tinted, stale, putrid, occasionally, but ever only temporarily pure. And Gothic air stands out as a medium for other things, voices, sighs, groans, lightning, music, apparitions, Gothic air is an interfering vehicle for information, in a word, even as it is literature's superficial forms that loudly inform us that it is. These two helixes, the lexical and the aerial, define and perpetuate early Gothic writing, though often to nerve-wracking effect, since the information that both helixes carry is usually so inscrutable. But nowhere does trepidation about what writing might hold, mean, convey, coincide more often 
trepidation about what the air might hold, mean, or convey, than in Anne Radcliffe's ubiquitous romances of the 1790s. The heftiest and most ubiquitous of these, The Mysteries of Udolpho, opens with a glimpse of the majestic Pyrenees, whose summits, veiled in clouds, or exhibiting awful forms, were seen and lost again as the partial vapors rolled along and gleamed through the blue tinge of air. Some 400 pages later, the inexplicably named Italian castle of the title rises, silent, lonely, and sublime. Its moldering stones seem to sigh as the breeze rolled past. Udolpho's reluctant guest, the aptly surnamed Emily St. Aubert, is the daughter of a botanist who, back in the cradle of that blue Pyrenean air, once valiantly tried to teach her the habit of cool examination. But because her Gothic environment is so clammy, so cool itself, this amounts to just the opposite of analytic detachment. So it is Emily, on approach, anxiously surveying Udolpho's edifice, managing to distinguish little more than part of its outline, and uncertain whether she is yet outside or inside it, unable, really, to tell herself apart from it. That is because Udolpho is conspicuously of a piece with the book that Emily is, after all, in, one where air, as in the very word Udolpho, appears to be trapped inside the letters that convey it. So, when Emily opens a window to inspire the pure air, she is met not with a breeze, but with, quote, sweet and picturesque sounds, if such an expression may be allowed. She is, in other words, met with the medium of literary expression at its most obtrusive. Or is it intrusive? Either way, Emily sets out with her ailing father in search of, what else, better air, and Radcliffe borrows a line from James Thompson's spring to render the serene air by breezy murmurs cool that she breathes. When Emily looks out into volumes of mist, it's hard to imagine they might be anywhere but inside of a pun. Encounters with the air and the mysteries of Udolpho are never, are, are, are never even ostensibly direct experiences. They're hyper-mediated hyper reminders that we are in a book, which is to say, in a contrived system of mediating signs, one that, as such, oppresses every bit as much as it protects from whatever really is out there. Give me air, gasps Emily in the bowels of Udolpho, where she can entertain no doubt but that a violent change in the air had just, has just effected a fatal one on the exhausted frame of the ant who'd been her only protector. Emily herself is always breathless from fear or the want of fresh air, if not from some loquacious servant having sucked all of it out of the room, who, her spirits, as Radcliffe puts it, suffer extremely from want. Surely this is because, despite the blue tinge of air that Radcliffe always paints into her celebrated landscapes, despite the airs her cultured heroines play on lutes or compose in lines of verse, and despite the haughty airs that their oppressors inevitably assume, despite all this air, there really isn't any there at all apart from the word on the page. It's Radcliffe's genius to make it clear that it is to these typographical characters that our human ones are responding when they seem to breathe or sigh. Small wonder that her female characters should find such informing and deep constitutive environments so oppressive. Radcliffe herself succumbed to spasmodic asthma in 1826, almost 30 years after she published her last novel, The Italian. Apparently, for all her popularity and influence, in the end, she too found this kind of thing less cool than just plain suffocating. Her two literary heirs automatically restrict the very experience that they make possible. Contemporary readers were quick to gauge both the apparent abundance of Radcliffean air and its strange asphyxiating vacuity. 
They drew on Radcliffe's own aerial bent to conceptualize and reproduce in their own readers the kind of experience everyone presumably has reading her. Commenting on the novelist's celebrated vistas, for example, Walter Scott remarked that, quote, there is, as it were, a haze over her landscape, softening indeed the whole, but without conveying any absolutely precise or individual image to the reader. He drew in an example. The beautiful description of Udolpho as Emmeline approaches it is of this character. Scott may have gotten her name wrong, but he very properly has Emily approaching not a place referenced by Radcliffe's writing, but a beautiful description within it, one that, composed of the same typographical characters, could only disappear into the haze over her landscape, and thence into the critical texts, equally evanescent as it were. As for Radcliffe's other signature, the so-called explained supernatural, a visibly irked Mary Wollstonecraft likened the novelist's quasi-scientific mode of accounting in a natural manner for unsupernatural appearances to the manufacture of, quote, glistening bubbles blown up in air, only to evaporate more conspicuously, leaving the aching sight searching after the splendid nothing. Thanks for nothing, Wollstonecraft seems to say. For both her and Scott, a sense of air as cheat, as in fact nothing, was bound up with the sense of air as mere and confining and literal stereotype. It's a problem that has always plagued Radcliffe's fiction. It was how Scott could mistake Emily for Charlotte Smith's Gothic heroine Emmeline and why then Hazlitt thought of Radcliffe's heroes. Well, here it is. Theodore, Valancourt, what del delightful names. And there was nothing else to distinguish them by. <laughs> An American of her day likewise complained that Radcliffe's style is a constant ringing of bells and mists and glens and portcullises and moats, etc., etc. Even Radcliffe's most sympathetic English biographer admitted that her compulsive repetition of the same images of rock, wood, and water, and the same epithets of grand, vast, and sublime must appear tautologous. The air that seems to permeate Radcliffe's romances is just a repeated word, too. It could be abstract, concrete, it's all the same. What makes air different from other kinds of words is not it that it's composed so pretentiously in and through the automatic combination and recombination of superficial and stereotypical forms. Not only does Radcliffe's air visibly dissolve into the letters that literally compose it, it's also transmitted through the lines of dead English poets that Radcliffe cites on every page. Milton, Thompson, Collins, Shakespeare, Gray, they're all there, or parts of them are, and when Radcliffe puts them to, while Radcliffe puts them to more than one use, it is remarkable how often she, she imports the renderings of air, English air, natural and supernatural alike. So Collins's aerial forms appear in Radcliffe's epigraphs to erase the line dividing the inside of a chapter from the outside, or Ossian's gale of spring wafts through her narration to erase the distinction between the air that blows in her books and that which blows outside them and those of others. If you knew that Ossian's bardic stylizations were actually forged by their 18th century translator, you'll truly see what I'm getting at here, thin air. Virginia Woolf once said that Gothic fiction is more involved with the ordinary style. <laughs> Here's this one, little boy. Okay. Um, let's see. Virginia Woolf once said that Gothic fiction is far more involved with the ordinary English library than with anything to be found outside it. Following her lead, Deidre Lynch has read Radcliffe's citations from the ordinary library as vexatious ghosts of an Anglophone literary canon. But even as they reveal the presence of a then consolidating system of English literary practices and values, reviving gales like those Radcliffe stole from Thompson are also legible as what we call feedback loop, 
Here, Radcliffe's own literary composition analytically decomposes that system from inside. Her borrowed airs are notes that, though they exist entirely in and of that system, can nonetheless bicker with its laws of property and propriety. If you've read Radcliffe, you know that at the level of her own Byzantine plot, similar laws constrain her floating, elastic, blue-eyed, her aeriform heroines, to whom properties like Udolpha do and do not belong. Meanwhile, Radcliffe's tendency to register the aerial forms of her literary forebears and ghostly italics presses back upon the print medium to underscore the finally spectral character of literary property. These same forms can make Radcliffe's fiction feel less like a story than a syllabus. That's not to devalue them, though. Syllabus happens to have been one form in which real English air was conceived and displayed in Radcliffe's day. Consider the demographer Thomas Short's 1767 short syllabus of the air, weather, and seasons. While Radcliffe's air might look canned, stylized, a composition of recombinant typefaces and depleted literary forms, it was still also consistent with the manner in which her English-speaking and writing contemporaries engaged the air about them, scientifically and philosophically. Short's own syllabus was partly a pastiche of the writings of, quote, many ingenious gentlemen in different and distant places who have kept journals of the weather and its temperatures. The proliferation of works, just like Short's short syllabus throughout the 18th century, suggests a hitherto unappreciated analytic potential in the explicitly literary mediation of the medium of air. And I venture the then present state of English atmospheric studies entitled both Radcliffe and her female protagonists to experiment within factitious environments, not just as if they were factual, but because from a purely descriptive point of view, they were. I'm going to say that this sense of entitlement came from no one more than from Radcliffe's contemporary, Joseph Priestley. But before leaving her behind entirely, I'd like to underscore the potential creative and affirmative way her air elucidates an opaque but inevitable medium for employment. The air that Radcliffe's presumably French and Italian heroines breathe is never English air, and as the blue tinge of it suffuses her faint landscapes, it also encodes what critics call the softer graces of the non-English speaking landscape painters like Poussin and Claude Lorraine, whom Radcliffe is supposed to have copied with her pen. In both cases, Radcliffe's air visibly marks the place of English lexical mediation. It makes apparent, in other words, that Radcliffe's improbably English-speaking heroines really aren't breathing French or Italian air, and that we are reading a modern English novel not looking at an old French painting. Aerial citations in such instances serve to make the facts and elements of mediation apparent as a condition of experience, even as they signal the literal composition of Radcliffean fiction, words printed in movable type on pages to produce an impression of English. What's more, Radcliffe's fixed yet volatile forms of air animate the classic predicament of Gothic heroines trapped in worlds constructed in and through media. If anything, her aerial forms compound their predicament with that of Radcliffe's own reader. There is literally no difference between the kinds of air that her female characters breathe, listen to, write about, physically shape with their lutes and vocal, excuse me, um, vocal cords, uh, mistake for ghosts, fight to keep breathing, there's no meaningful difference between the kind of air about them and the kind that we are reading about. Here it's possible to see how something we can call literary atmosphere could arise from the recombinant, artificial, and self-consciously superficial field of letters. We can also begin to imagine, if not see, how people like Coleridge and Scott, readers of Radcliffe, 
could begin writing about atmosphere in this sense, and how novelists like Bulwer-Lytton Bulwer or Dickens or even Jane Austen, who sends up five unironic umbrellas, at least in Northanger Abbey, could begin manufacturing it for themselves. If nothing else, the reflexive literariness of Radcliffe's heir realizes these developments and helps us to realize how they came about through the material of the literary medium. So that's the literary part. I'll move on to this slide quickly. Um, so I believe I will call Radcliffe's heir fixed heir. It's fixed, that is, into rigid superficial forms that the novelist reflexively arranges and rearranges to register and through its effects examine a de facto literary environment. Fixed air, though, is also a term pertaining to the environment. It's what 18th century pneumatic chemists call carbon dioxide, and they had only recently isolated and analyzed it as one of the components of the common air we all breathe. The very notion that common air has components took decades to diffuse and be absorbed. But in 1774, Priestley's experiments and observations on different kinds of air catalyzed this process. Experiments and observations begins with Priestley wandering past a brewery and bath and noticing the bubbles that seethe in its baths. Thrilled by this discovery, the chemist goes on to employ an air pump to induce um, an air pump to induce effervescence artificially. He then experiments in the same manner with putrescence, evaporation, inflammation, combustion, and via such forced effects, he is able to identify what amount to 14 different kinds of air. These factitious airs, so-called to distinguish them from common air, turn out to be all there is to air itself, though for us to be able to live in, through and with it, only one seems to be strictly required, oxygen which for reasons I'll get into later, Priestley called vital or deflogisticated air. It was with, it is a joke, you're right to laugh. It was with fixed air, though, that Priestley was most positively and frequently associated in his own day. One reason was the bubbles of fixed air were relatively visible, and they were certainly ubiquitous. Once people knew what to look for, fixed air started showing up all over the place. Being in Germany in the summer of the year 1774, Priestley himself recalled, he happened to pass by a famous spring of seltzer water, and here he observed a bubbling of air exactly similar to that in the bathwaters. Fixed air bubbles up in Radcliffe's writing. Her 1795 travelogue of her tour to the German states but, uh, devotes pages to a side trip to quote seltzers, which under the name of seltzer is so celebrated throughout Europe for its medicinal water. Here, Radcliffe mixed seltzer water with Rhenish wine and sugar, and found that, quote, the acid of the wine, expelling the fixed air of the other ingredients, occasions an effervescence like that of champagne. The novelist supposed that, quote, the danger of drinking carbonated water is that the acid may be too powerful for some constitutions. What made this acid so threatening to some constitutions? One thing is that it reveals all constitutions to be just that, constituted of elements that are, in Priestley's phrase, exactly similar from constitution to constitution. What is the difference between a German cocktail and, say, French champagne? Between seltzers and seltzer? Between the bubbling of air in a German spring and the same thing in a vat in Bath? Between bubbling and bubbles? Between the experiments and observations of a respected chemist and a travelogue by a best-selling novelist? Both Radcliffe and Priestley raised these suddenly difficult questions within the interchangeable elements of the English print medium. But at the level of those typographical elements, how English, really? 
More broadly speaking, Radcliffe and Priestley both experimented with fixed air in the scientific environment of the so-called chemical revolution, a revolution not incidentally ignited by pneumatic investigations like Priestley's. The two writers also shared a revolutionary socio-political environment. Priestley's preface to experiments and observations famously threatened that, quote, the English hierarchy, if there be anything unsound in its constitution, has equal reason to tremble even at an air pump. At Isaac Kramnick, as Isaac Kramnick's pointed out, Priestley's abelian and discriminating chemistry, based on multitudes of exactly similar kinds dispersed the world over, supplied a metaphorical model for a rising universal and democratic political vision. By definition, though, Priestley's atmospheres, atmospheric figures also turned out to express the threat that this same vision posed to fixed political constitutions, constitutions that Priestley himself painted as part of, quote, a Gothic feudal system now vanishing like an enchanted castle in a romance. Thus Burke. The wild gas, the fixed air, is plainly broke loose, he warned in 1790 of the revolution in France. William Pitt also anxiously marked the effervescence of the public mind at that time. The Burke was the one to recommend that we, quote, suspend our judgment until the effervescency is a little subsided, till the liquor is clearer, until we see something deeper than the agitation of the troubled and frothy surface. But Priestley took little interest in anything deeper. In fact, scientifically speaking, there wasn't anything deeper than the frothy surface. His work assumed and displayed the integrity of froth, of effervescency itself, and only thus, by way of its active effects, that of fixed air. That's why Samuel Johnson ruled that Priestley must have been, quote, an evil man, sir. His work unsettles everything. <laughs> Most obviously, Priestley's work on air unsettled everything, in part because he held that the singular physical mechanical body to which Robert Boyle had ascribed the equally singular name of air, was nothing but a composite of many different gases or airs. From this point of view, there is no air at all in Priestley's experiments and observations. There are just different kinds of air. Air itself, as a unified material body, does not exist except as a linguistic placeholder, a reference ticket, as disciples of Thomas Kuhn learned to say. Priestley himself knew what it meant to hold up such a ticket. There are, he maintained, very few maxims in philosophy that have laid firmer hold on the mind than that air is a simple elementary substance, indestructible and inalterable. Revolting against this mind-gripping maxim, he pronounced himself satisfied that atmospherical air is not an inalterable thing, or even any one thing at all. It was in consequence of living for some time in the neighborhood of a public brewery a little after midsummer in 1767 that I was induced to make experiments on fixed air, of which there was always a large body ready formed on the surface of the fermenting liquor. So begins his story of how Priestley began to play with the turbulent surface that is fixed air. It's hard not to hear echoes of Horace Walpole's then recent Castle of Otranto, since that romance was structured entirely around the scattered pieces <coughs> of a very large body. For his part, Priestley sets the midsummer scene of pneumatic experiment in a manner which perfectly expresses his challenge from within it to the large body ready formed of English knowledge of the air up to that time. What idiom could contain or transmit something which turned out to exist only, if at all, as a composition of different and yet infinitely interchangeable kinds? Here, the shadow of Otrato begins to seem other than incidental. In fact, Priestley was already on record as preferring the, quote, writer of romances to the faithful historian. 
The historian, he declared in his lectures on oratory and criticism, can engage only the disposition of events, whereas the romancier can at least hope to gain some access to the springs of the human passions. Priestley professed himself an admirer of Clarissa, George Barnwell, Eloise, and any other well-contrived fictions, making no important distinction among what to us look like hard and fast generic lines, novel, drama, poem. But to open access to otherwise hidden springs, romance did have to make its own superficiality and fictionality, its own disposition, its composition, apparent, as history did not. It did so through a kind of effervescent spring. The thought of its being a fiction enables us to make but a feeble and ineffectual effort to repress our feelings, Priestley observed, and those who have acquired an aversion to all works of fiction are incapable of the unprejudiced attention which this experiment requires. Thus Priestley, the literary theorist. He kept company with Priestley, the grammarian, whose rudiments of English grammar held that a grammar may be compared to a treatise of natural philosophy, the one consisting of observation on the various changes, combinations, and mutual affections of words, and the other on those of the parts of nature. Priestley, the pneumatic chemist, meanwhile, presumed that air was the most recombinant of all parts of nature, and he was asking his reader to experiment with him imaginatively upon the factitious errors themselves, and thereby virtually to enter the contingent and composite forms that they assume at any given moment and in any given place. Priestley's open, friendly style guarantees just about any English reader admission to the exuberantly superficial world that these forms composed. All that reader needed to be able to do was accept the ever-shifting alliances of differing forms or kinds as the precondition of what we experience and agree to call the surrounding uniformity of common air. To its reader, experiments and observations therefore submits a vivid, eventful, and often extremely beautiful hologram of the factitious airs, one that does nothing if not toy with the slinky of the un unprejudiced attention. In one experiment, some delicate flowers are suspended within the region of fixed air over fermenting vats. Later, contact with two different kinds of air gives rise to a beautiful white cloud. Nor was the delight that Priestley took in his airs only that of the involved spectator. Drawing vital air, or pure oxygen, through a glass siphon, he reported, I fancied my head felt peculiarly easy and light for some time afterward. That fizzy water, it was so delicious he thought he might go ahead and distribute it on the open market. <laughs> Watching bubbles form, rise, and froth in a basin of brew, he declares he has met with few persons who are soon weary of looking at it. Indeed, some could sit by it a whole hour and be agreeably amused all the time. Having crystallized nitrous air in a vial, the chemist returns to find the container almost filled with the most beautiful crystallizations imaginable, and his pen renders the feathery form they take in the airiest, most delicate of strokes. A more beautiful appearance can hardly be imagined, he rhapsodizes, and I am afraid I shall never see the like again. That's why I love Priestley. Sublimely fanciful they may be, but such experiments also give rise to unanticipated effects, fear, as here, or even a heightened moral sense. Priestley's nitrous feathers seem to decay, reduced to one compact mass without anything of the beautiful appearance they had made before. The chemist hurries to repair the injury. Ever on the lookout for an air of superior goodness, he is fascinated by the fact that though oxygen, vital air, is the reason whatever it is we breathe gives life, we cannot thrive unless that air be adulterated. We might, as may be said, live out too fast, and the animal powers be too soon exhausted in this pure kind of air, Priestley mused. A moralist, at least, 
may say that the air which nature has provided for us is as good as we deserve. Though Priestley could not pretend to be this moralist, he could at least take on the air of one, nurtured by the freedom created by what may be said and by what a certain kind of philosopher may say. Such fictional equivocations free the language of air to synthesize immaterial and material versions of reality, revealing unforeseen analogies, real points of transference between them. This was possible because in Priestley's book, not only is nothing air, it's just a word that refers to something that is always changing as different kinds of air make and remake it. Not only is nothing air, <coughs> but everything is air. With respect to the aerial form of substances, the chemist, unfixing everything indeed, found that there is no substance in nature but what is capable of assuming that form. It's not fizzy. <laughs> <coughs> Now, why couldn't the matter of Priestley's own writing count as one such intrinsically formal substance? <coughs> oh, but it could. Or at least it was partly by finding and arranging on the page proper terms by which to distinguish them that Priestley saw himself to have given rise to this new sense of common air. I have been under a necessity of giving names to those kinds of air to which no names have been given by others, he wrote, even as he assured his readers <coughs> that no person was ever more temperate or more cautious than I had been in the introduction of new terms, and that it was with great hesitation, though compelled by necessity, that I did it at all, and always adopting such as were analogous to others in established use. Priestley's liberty of expression was obviously bound up with that of the air he expressed. But in both cases, liberty depends on what would seem to inhibit it, repetition, hesitation, and the pressure of necessity. <coughs> in verbal terms, Priestley further limited himself by using the term air as expressive of the mere form in which a substance is exhibited without any consideration of the elements in which it consists. But the limits of his formalism opened to deep springs of freedom. Just consider the names of Priestley's many airs. Like any character in modern fiction, each possessed a first and a last, though the surname, air, was always and everywhere the same. So in experiments and observations, we meet not nitrogen or carbon dioxide or even sulfur, but mephitic air, fixed air, vital air, dephlogisticated air, nitrous air. Priestley's airs hover somewhere between adjectives and nouns, place markers and thing markers. If anything, his aim appears to have been to keep air up in the air. Those who choose to apply air to a substance and not to a form are certainly at full liberty to do so if they please, he reassures. And provided we understand one another, no inconvenience will result from our use of a different language. As forms that might or might not count as substances, the different kinds of air virtually embody principles of diversity, universality, commonality, and infinite possibility. As for the verbs that Priestley selected to register their manners and behaviors, these plainly showed their relationship to the often fanciful observer and were very often explicitly figurative. Priestley's heirs were imbibed or themselves impregnated. They became depraved, got injured, or infected. They were diminished, vitiated. Once in a while, they even proved their goodness. In the candid of freeform naming of the heirs, we can't help but detect Priestley's own limitations. His alienation from natural philosophies rapidly consolidating increasingly abstract discursive conventions, for example. It stands to reason he grew up in Yorkshire, of all places, received no elite education to speak of, taught English lit and language in a dissenting academy, very far from either Oxford or Cambridge. Priestley pursued his experiments in out-of-the-way places like Birmingham and Bath, and ultimately took his vials and retorts to the far-flung skirts of the Susquehanna. 
But there's something else in his self-consciously literary grammar of atmosphere that his self-consciously literary grammar of atmosphere aimed at, avoidance of the air itself. I mean this literally because it happens that Priestley spoke with a terrible stutter. Terrible is almost exactly how he described it in his memoirs, which return obsessively to, quote, the impediment in my speech, which I inherited, and which still attends me. Sometimes I absolutely stammered, he recalled, and my anxiety about it was the cause of much distress to me. Indeed, the impediment in his speech evoked, quote, such distress of mind as it is not in my power to describe, and which I still look back upon with horror. Priestley, it appears, was actually scared of her. He didn't want to talk about it because he meant that meant he would have to talk with it. But this was the lot of all people. Priestley's rudiments of English grammar had remarked that by means of its elasticity, air affords to all animals that live in it a most convenient medium of communication by sounds. But human communication always stumbles, for it consists chiefly in checking and stopping the air in a great variety of ways. Speakers of the principal northern tongues, like English, made matters worse because they did not give the air a free passage out of their mouths, but made great use of their tongues and lips in retarding and modulating it. Priestley's own difficulties here were obviously and literally compounded, as he had inherited such an unreliable instrument for forming the air into intelligible shape. Seeking some replacement for that instrument, he found it in writing. Early on, Priestley's indescribably horrifying defect of speech spurred attachment to the written word as a form of regulation and compensation, as a shelter even. It became his childhood custom to recollect as much as I could of the sermons I heard and to commit it to writing. Writing at home almost as much as I had heard, I insensibly acquired a habit of composing with great readiness. In adulthood, literary composition remained both a form of material management and a protective amelioration of troubled utterance. Just so, Priestley's scientific pursuits were as likely to spring from writing as from, say, blowing bubbles. His friend Anna Barbeau described his laboratory as, quote, a strange mixed oleo of papers and books where a mass of heterogeneous matter, a chaos dark, nor land, nor water, new books like newborn infants stand, waiting the printer's clothing hand. Priestley's experiments on electricity began with his writing a distinct and methodical account of all that had been done by others. It was only from and through writing that he was led by degrees into a large field of original experiments. But writing wasn't just a vacuum safe from air. It was a factitious but analogous technology through which common air, itself a factitious composition after all, could be safely viewed and known in all its forms. Writing made air's parts at once apparent and visibly consistent with linguistic structure, with human grammars. From this perspective, written English looked especially good to Priestley because it showcased his native tongue's virtuous preference for transparent composition over enigmatic inflection, as in the future tense, which in English is usually conveyed through the use of auxiliaries like shall, will, or must, rather than through some mysterious mutation of the main verb. Here, as in his aerial philosophy, a compositional structure, though all too easily dismantled into small parts a tongue could trip over, was still preferable to a single elementary substance, indestructible and inalterable. For if it could just be made visible, composition also expressed relationships and showed where meaning comes from, how it can be arranged, that it can be arranged, that mediating forms inform and surround the very human tongue that presumes to bid them. So for Priestley, writing the air was a way of realizing it through analog an analogous, a factitious form. Priestley's most famous and incendiary formulation, though, rem though remained the one we've heard, winding to hand, <laughs> the English hierarchy, if there be anything unsound in its constitution,
institution has reason to tremble even in America. In this formulation, as written, we can now see that the sublimity of technologies like the air pump, their ability to induce fear and trembling in account, lay in their capacity for showing from within it that knowledge consists of different kinds that can be dispersed in all directions. Writing, and especially writing in an English language whose elements were at once fixed and universal, whose grammar was a self-elucidating fiction, was for Priestley another such technology, and the prospect of dispersal that all such technologies held out was, at least to Priestley, a prospect truly sublime and glorious. Priestley's sublimely medium-centered science yielded a distinctive epistemological and ethical practice. Its premises were limitation, disappointment, even subjection to inherited flaws, to things we know aren't there but can't say how or why we know it, to things we know must be there but same problem, it's Gothic. Indeed, under the guise of expressing the different kinds of air, experiments and observations stages just this equivocal conception of knowledge. I was deceived at the beginning of the process, Priestley will say. New experiments unhinged whatever I had thought the best established. I could not immediately upon seeing this phenomenon form an idea of the nature of this air. I kept viewing this production of air with a considerable degree of surprise and anxious expectation. Such Gothic formulations of life in the lab look disingenuous to many historians of science. I agree that these are the airs of an ingenue. But precisely as such, they float a quiet hypothesis. That simply to perceive that one might be inside a scheme is to experience, critically, a legitimate form of reality itself. From this point of view, it is only information, never knowledge, that we can possess, and that, like common air, is always rearranging itself into new, yet uncannily familiar forms, as different elements happen to enter and exit it, for reasons known only to themselves. It is, after all, Priestley insists, only because he happened to live beside that brewery that he even noticed fixed air in the first place. Likewise, if I had not happened, for some other purpose, to have a lighted candle in front of me, I should probably have never made the trial that led him to the discovery of oxygen or vital air. Except that Priestley never quite made that discovery. First, an analogy. There is one scene in The Mysteries of Udolpho when Emily St. Aubert is trying to burn her father's letters without reading them. She's been instructed to do so by the dying scientist himself, and she's a good girl. She manages halfway. But she can't help reading a few words by accident as the flame is devouring the paper. The words tell her nothing. They do, however, give rise to dark moods and prompt her to see and feel things, including a ghost or two. As Terry Castle's shown, Radcliffe's, uh, Radcliffe, like Emily herself, seems quick to dismiss the ghosts as mere specters of everyday melancholy, the vapors, I guess you'd say. I'd say they're just prototypes, or are they afterimages of the Gothic novel they're in? But media of knowledge? We aren't supposed to think so. Exactly similar, Priestley never knew or explicitly identified as oxygen what, after many guttering candle flames, he himself comes across in experiments and observations. The prestige of having given that kind of air its real name fell to a Frenchman, Antoine Lavoisier. Priestley, by contrast, retreated to a finally alchemical, indeed a historically Gothic, convention of naming and conceptualization. He preferred to tie this particular kind of air to phlogiston. He held that for common air to support breath, that fiery element in alchemy, the mysterious fifth, and long imagined the secret of air's known combustibility had to be extracted from it. This backward, evacuated, and frankly fantastic stance Priestley maintained to the bafflement and irritation of historian of sciences to this day, and to the mortification of the English pneumatic chemistry that he otherwise helped to transform and revitalize Lavoisier's real discovery of the positive gas, oxygen, passed the torch to 
French. We shouldn't see it that way. What Priestley had done, and was doing even here, was establish that the air we breathe and assume depends for its meaning on customary inherited form, on what is metaphorically in the air at the time. Like a fiction, it tends to dissolve into the inherited linguistic conventions that we use to talk about it. We need it to. Priestley's aerial philosophy confronts this need and actively tests the limits of the symbolic habits that it sponsors. Ditto Radcliffe's aerial philosophy, and her experiments and observations are conducted in the same literary medium that Priestley's were. Where then, as Lawrence Stern has said, lies the difference between them? I'm sure there are lots of places to look. As I said at the start, Priestley is out of print, but his formulations, like his fixed air, got loose from this medium. People think, even speak, through them and don't realize it. Science does, for example, try to know the atmosphere as a composition and by parsing its grammar, as Priestley did. It forgets, as he did not, that it and we are using metaphors and media to do it. What about Radcliffe? Here, you still can see the medium and its metaphors, but it is kind of all you do see. If you know her fiction, you know that the girls she writes about, like Emily St. Aubert, are more or less the first English majors. The Radcliffian heroine is never altogether certain of what it is she's seeing, though she knows how to talk about it and how to feel that it's about her. She inhales the smoke that rises from fragments of burnt letters and reads between lines carved on air-filled windowsills. Her long-lost lover returns, say from Paris, a city where, asserts the oh-so-English author, affectation so often distorts the air. The lover, that indistinguishable Valancourt, appears out of thin air while he, she's playing her lute and greets her with an equation to wit, Emily, that air. When this happens, though, the deep twilight will not allow either the lover or us to distinguish the astonishment and doubting joy that fix her features. Having modeled the aerial suspension of disbelief that the modern knowledge of modern fictional worlds requires, the Radcliffian heroine disappears into thin air. She marries, as she does in the Italian in an airy fairyland. Wish well, as is Emily St. Aubert by bookish servants who have read the fairy tales, she less exits the Gothic page than fades into it, leaving us unsure what to make of her. All of which is to say that, like Wright of Darby's bird, she and the different kinds of air that compose her and the things she knows about knowledge are finally fixed in fiction's fragile file. And that is where, for better or for worse, they have floated ever since.
time of day changes, night, days, twilight, really. Going to, back to Chaucer with that great description of the sunset and that, that ends with, and that was desire that it was nicht. Um, right. So that this, the use of, it's not called air there, it's called light and day, right. but the use of outside weather and outside right. time changes in this very self-conscious literary mode. Right. It's the air sort of an inheritor of that. It is very much so. So in some ways a lot of this is obviously not a new thing. We talked about this a little bit at Hanford too, at Lakeridge, you know, there is sort of built into the word a sort of double reference, yeah. right? On one, on one side toward the material world, on the other side toward affectation and toward artifice, right? And you put on airs, whatever. Yeah. I mean, horses is almost kind of toddler's way to move back and forth between those. And that goes all the I mean, if you go back to Aristotle's Meter and Logica, right? And he's, he says the first thing, he says the first problem is what we call the air, right? And, you know, and he immediately understands, right, that, that describing whatever it is, right, that, that the breathing is bound up with, you know, the problem of, of, of human shaping the air, which of course is literally true. Way that these people are deeply acknowledged. I mean, they're creating the words in that way. But so, I mean, there's 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 a constant kind of reciprocity that you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not doing anything like making any sort of radical huge claim about it. But it's interesting that Priestley both gave that up. So yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And he realizes that it could count as a form of knowledge, right? I mean, it's not knowledge as it sort of constructed, you know, traditionally in human beings, right? Because it has this sort of. I mean, it's like Milton would have loved this. Finding with improv, right? I think that's really uh, it's right, and I think that is part of the reason one of the reasons that he's sticking with, with air. That and also, you know, sort of the idea of you know, what boiling down the, the word in the first place to, to mean is that's it's fine. But, but back to gases, and the other thing about that is it's actually a really funny story. Um, gas, um, there are different versions of, of, of what that word actually means, right? Um, but basically, it's chaos in Greek, right? And, and I mean. Uh, and apparently, when Van Helmont used that word to talk about gases, right, he was saying that it's chaos, right, and he was sort of misunderstood to say gas. I mean, like the air actually literally like mistranscribed <laughs> what he was describing. See what I'm saying? Um, I mean, it's a, word, it's a really, it's a good, uh, Jenny Goodlow tells this story in her book on the Roman Society. Yeah, so there's this literal language, if you think of air as the transmitter of sound, Right. There's this literal language that's interfering. No, you're not going to call it gas. You know, you're, <laughs> you're not going to, at least you're not going to call it, you're not going to call it chaos. You're not going to call me chaos. You know? So it's an interesting one that's sort of a blanket way of thinking about it. Here it is. Yes. I'm interested in um, the idea that air could carry energies and yeah. disease. Yes. Like cholera. Also, um, the fashion that comes up at the end of the, of the century, or that is an annual magnetism. Yes. Uh, could you talk about you know, is there annual magnetism? Is there a special quality of the air which allows right. annual magnetism to, to, to travel through it? Yeah. But which is a way to think about air as a kind of conductor, right? I think exactly. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the, what, what you're really pointing. I mean, there is this whole long sort of tradition which really. Really think about the supernatural right, as, as different than anything else. I mean, I would see that that's where sort of some of the magnetism come in. There is also this sort of miasmatic kind of exactly magnetism. Right. right. I, I think it is derived from you know experiments with you know like something. 
and really trying to sort of abstract that, you know, in some way, right? And, and even electricity, right? There are these ways of sort of trying to strip, you know, that 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 phenomenon of some of those associations, but it's still obviously out there. was terrific and it sparked lots of things in my head. And one of the things I wanted to pursue a little bit more was the, the politics of Diana right. in this period. Um, Priestley, of course, was at the very center of the dissenting community, teaching at Florington Academy, yeah. that's where kind of Barbara knew him, of course, yeah. um, and very caught up in the Jacobin you know, critique of, of the established government and oiler language of the common air, yeah. the constitution. Yes. I kept something that for Priestley was Clearly has powerful political overtones, and that's what he's trying to steal back. Yeah. You know, and then I was thinking back to Lord Mansfield's anti-slavery judgment. Yes. The air of England was too pure yes. for slaves to yeah. breathe in, and, right. and clearly yeah. Priestley is trying to sort of promulgate a notion of a purified democratic yeah. air yeah. that's common to all, yeah. um, that has to be preserved against the pollutions and filthy international play. What I was really interested in was the, the internationalism of yes. this experiment yes. that, you know, whether you're in France or Germany, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Or maybe the air has become right. cosmopolitan as yes. opposed to just English. Right. And I wonder if you thought about yeah. that. I have thought about that. And, and you know, I mean, in, in your point, you said that you knew you were really important, you know, that this was going on in the 19th century, and it doesn't strike me as that. I mean, he's very aware of it, but I think what's interesting about him, I mean, he says, there's, I mean, there's this one of the other Yeah. <laughs> well, because it makes its appearance, right? 
Um, and it makes it, but what the main thing is that really, and this will take it into, it's the image that I showed of the aircraft, right, which is a design one, right? And it's the, the, the idea is, I mean, aircrafts were actually um, like toys, right? I think so anybody can fly an aircraft, right? And you can have it in your living room. And then it would give you this knowledge that previously was, you know, really the, 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 the province of, of humans to this time. Bad, bad approach to the air. They were all kind of, you know, uh, provincial and at least, you know, informal approaches to the weather that anybody or air that anybody would be allowed. That's true. But the air pump is it's literally, and I didn't get into this at all, I was trying to think about it more as a metaphor for my own life. But, but but literally, you know, if anybody can have an air pump, anybody can acknowledge this, this meeting, right? And it means that that meeting is common to everyone. And so, you know, and so in a constitution that's invested in kind of the you know, in any kind of class based knowledge system. And actually, I got the quote up short. He also says an airplane or an electrical machine, <laughs> which is the other thing that you can also, you know, you can be with, uh, actually, through his own history of, of present state of electricity or, or kind of phenomenal electricity, you can basically go to an air, uh, your, your electrical machine or you can take high and heat out there. You can have, you know, what is it's in the air, like it really goes in to everyone and, and these machines work with it. So I think that's I have so many different things going on in my head right now. It's really hard to pinpoint what I want to ask you about. But I think I want to ask you about the visual right. and how it, it plays into this. Like, I was I was struck by the and really love the kind of gothic nature of knowledge that you delineated at the end, yeah. just kind of embrace of knowing and not knowing. Right. Right. And I'm thinking about the air pump here because that's a way to envision right something that is important. yeah. And I was thinking then about what you were saying about the, the descriptions in Radcliffe that look like French painting but are right. by English poetry. Yes. And so we know that they're not French. Right. And we also know that they're not painting. We know that they're verbal. Right. And I was also thinking about Priestley's embrace of language as something that is not oral. Right. That it's visual. Visual. Right. right. So right. I'm just trying to figure out how this all fits into a question, but I'm really interested in the kind of relationship of the visual to yes. the verbal here. Yes. The verbal print, you emphasize that a lot, as yes. itself a kind of visual form that yeah. evokes something beyond itself. Right. That we can envision, right. that we can hear. Right. But at the same time, I mean, maybe this is about not being able to fully know what atmosphere is. We don't really see it. Right. The way exactly. we see a painting, or yes. the way we see the air pump. Right. You can't. And even though, I mean, one of the techniques within. Like you should finish. No, I think okay. I'm done. Okay, so I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. kind of curious about that both yeah. the visual yes. and your argument and how yeah. that works. You know, that's and that's a great question. And you're also pressing on what is I think a real problem actually in the later parts of the paper because you know part of what I want to say about what writing did for Priestley was that it really did make this invisible thing visible. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like it really was. You know, it was this controlling compositional form and, and in the visual dimension it was really important because it moved him out of the and so he's out of that risk and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But it also shows limitations, so it has this kind of other yeah. side to it. So there's that, that kind of um, duality really going on here. But I think one of the one of the things that, that I would say has to do with the peculiar nature of the visual field of writing. I mean, it's just stating the obvious, but still, um, which yes, you do have a visual field. It is making you see things, right? Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not actually literally picturing anything. If anything, the only thing it's really picturing is, in fact, air, right? I mean, sounds. You know, I mean, that's really all you're seeing if you're seeing anything in a visual field of writing that's mm -hmm. been sort of translated into that. So I think that, that, that writing as a visual medium 
special sort of intermediate status between, you know, um, between invisible and visible forms of human apparition. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, that sort of the whole apparition narrative from the non-corporeal, you know, is a way of sort of talking about, right, it, right, as mm -hmm. because apparitions are also in this intermediate relationship between the visible and invisible worlds. And, you know, um, writing about them could, could, could work as a, in, in a kind of self-reflexive mode to talk about, about that, that, that particular relationship. But I just have to say, in, in, in honesty, you know, I think I haven't, I don't feel completely comfortable with what I'm saying about, you know, what writing did for Priestley here. And it's, um, and it's precisely partly because of this whole question of, you know, what is the status of, of, of yeah. the visual. And, I mean, there's so much work in your field, you know, which is really undercutting the ocular obsession of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You know, the spectatorial, eye-based forms of knowledge. And there's a part of me that wants to reframe that question. I want to say mm -hmm. that you don't have to give up the visual entirely in order to accommodate other forms of understanding. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because there's been so much emphasis, in, and Eric, of course, gets into it in our, you know, um, uh, you know, um, you know, smells, right, or uh, sounds, right, like you know, um, Schmidt's book on hearing things is mm -hmm. that form of knowledge being very much, you know, the oral medium of the visual. Which again is making the same kind of move and saying, you know, we just need to get rid of that visual dimension. But, but I, I, I don't think we necessarily do. I just think we need to think, or at least I'm not reading, I'm not speaking that grandiosely, but, but I think some of these writers are really trying to um, look at the, the other conceptions of vision, and that would actually bring in some of the supernatural stuff, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, you know, what it means to see an apparition what, versus what it means to see a, a physical object, mm -hmm. and, and what it means to. You know, see through a medium as opposed to just be looking at it. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. But it's not. I have obviously not as fully as I would like. No, I, mean, so. I think it's incredibly suggestive of what he's built into. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So there's a question. Maybe it's, it's a 1590s answer to Barbour, but I, just to understand the literal sense, that bird that's not going to come out well in that. No. <laughs> and what they're showing there is vacuum. Yes, they're trying to. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's the experiment. Yeah. I mean, so if it were the 1590s, yes, the answer to Barbara's question about the radicalism right. would mean that um, the world, the universe, isn't a kingdom. Right. There, right. there can be empty spaces, and if there can be empty spaces, oh, right. there can be a kind of radical movement because yeah. not everything has to be filled, and therefore, in right. some sense, you know, they're even in a container that's filled, things can move around, but it's harder to conceptualize radical movement if everything is all full already. And so if you have yeah. emptiness, then there's right. always the possibility of, yeah. of really radical change. That's how that that argument in constructive fiction. Yeah, that's what, that's what right. I'm thinking. That that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the politics of the air pump, is that you can yeah. show that, that, that there's an empty space. There, there's yeah. a place where you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's so much better answer. Where's my person? But there is, I mean, some of this turns back to, I mean, if you look at the kind of historical narrative that that had issue, right? But, I mean, the sort of history of the novel is fascinating. Like, if you're starting with um, Boyle, actually, right? Of course, he's not really dealing with it, but he's trying to know the rhythm. He's presumably creating this case where it is not, right? But then there's the whole, um, you know, the housing of the whole achievement to write about this and revise it in the air pump, but the whole, you know, housing. Idea that the air pump leaked, 
right? Or there's something else like getting in there and kill the bird, you know, it's still there because you could win. Because back then, it's like, you know, you could actually see it, right? Like you can't see that thing with your air. There's always been something that you that that thing that you can see. But yeah, anyway. you see the results of the withdrawal in the air. Yeah. And this causes yes. not only the bird to die, right. but it causes great emotional distress in little girls. Right, well that's part yeah. of the injury. Can you interpret well. this distress as a more personal one in these sensitive uh, girls? Is this a kind of experience social distress yeah. that might be caused by taking away the natural medium in which we live, which is you know, right. might be something democratic. Right, that we or, share. Yeah. Or something egalitarian. Right. You could, yeah. You could actually read it that way. That's really interesting. And particularly the fact that it is women, right? You yeah, actually, and that means you have these generations of women, right? I mean, it is almost like there is this exploration of, you know, sort of um, female education that, you know, is going on there, which is, of course, a big part of this, right? And bringing women into the re-education. But also that, that idea that to explain the effects of air, right, um, and thereby know it, and that's the only way you can ever get it. You know, one way of describing its effects is, yes, it's the dead bird in the vacuum, right, which is actually, I mean, the iconography of that is also, I don't know if you know this, it's like father, son, holy spirit, right, so it's very big confusion about it. Holy Ghost. Okay. Yeah, but, we, you know, it's really in that triangle, right, so this, <laughs> sorry, um, but then it's also another effect of air, right, is the emotional effect of women watching, right, and so why is it that that, that, that effect, right, doesn't count as much as the effect of, 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 of the, 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 the death of you know, either the death of a bird or the death of a you know whole system of religious meaning at a most point. Which thought about Monsieur Dolorosa with the women standing around the world. Like oh no, it's thought no. It's totally different. I have not read it, but I bring it back and you can just see so clearly. I mean, it's going to be very graphic. But you can also see that the man, the scientist, as a yeah. kind of modest figure, as, as a real critique of, yeah. of his. Probably we should adjourn. Okay. Thanks for the plenitude of ideas and the vexing of values.